Father, here we are. And you've said it's not by might nor by power, but by your Spirit. And you've promised to send the Spirit of truth to lead us into all truth. Would you please speak to us through the power of your Word, through the inspiration of your Spirit in ways that moves us, that opens our heart to you. and That helps us to comprehend a little bit more deeply your awesome beauty. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. His people were vulnerable. They were on edge as a nation. The, the nation was surrounded. They, they had nowhere to go. And as finally the capital city was breached, he fled the city. I'm not talking about what's happened over the past week, although some of you have probably been watching on the news and you've seen the incredible events that have taken place in Afghanistan as the Taliban has rushed through that country and taken over power and the, the president of that country has fled. And we saw images coming back of, of refugees packed into airplanes trying desperately to get out of that country, trying desperately to preserve their lives. But on this evening... As the king and his soldiers rushed out of the city, they fled on horseback, hoping to escape the army of Nebuchadnezzar. You see, in 587 or 588 before Christ, Nebuchadnezzar had sent his army back to Jerusalem because Zedekiah, the last king of Israel, Zedekiah had determined that he did not trust Nebuchadnezzar and he had determined to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, which was evil in the sight of the Lord, we're told, because God had told him time and time again to just let the things happen that had happened with the exile. And so he had rebelled against the king and the army came and they sieged the city. The Bible tells us they built siege walls around the city and they were there for about two years sieging the city. And then it tells us that they were running out of food. And finally, there was a breach made in the wall. And the king said, I'm out of here. And he fled along with his army. And Nebuchadnezzar's army pursued him and captured him and took him and actually tortured him, gouged his eyes out and some other things. But the most horrific thing that happened for the Israelite nation at this point in time is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 9 and 10. It says that this is what took place by the general of Nebuchadnezzar's army. He burned the house of the Lord. That beautiful temple that Solomon had built to display the glory of God, it was burned. And the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great, he burned with fire. And then he he took captive everybody except for the very poorest of the land and took them captive, marched them across the desert. And do you imagine what's going through hearts and minds as they are taken captive? Is our God not powerful enough? Where is he? What's going on? Sometimes when we look at the world today and we see what's happening in nations and things going on, we wonder, where is God? What's going on? How is this happening? It's fascinating to capture what has taken place through the eyes of one minor prophet. You know, the prophets are known as pre-exilic or post-exilic prophets, meaning they either testified before the exile or after the exile. This momentous occasion in Israel's history when they were captured and taken from their city to Babylon. Well, the shortest book in the Old Testament is from a little prophet 
named Obadiah. I don't know if he's little, but his book is little. 21 verses long. Obadiah, we believe, uh, gave an, an oratory speech that was 21 verses. And it, it is believed that this took place at this very spot where God's house had been burned. Here you have a nation that's devastated, wondering where God is. And here comes a message from Obadiah. And friends, I believe that this is relevant for us in the world we're living in today, where we're seeing chaos, where we're seeing things going on. And it's also relevant for the chaos that we experience in our day-to-day life. So go with me to that little book. You may have a hard time finding it. It's between Amos and Jonah in the Minor Prophets and Obadiah. We're going to start with verse 1. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Now, I know this is a fascinating thing. Keep this in mind. He is talking to who? It's about Edom, but this message, we believe, was given as an oration to God's people in the midst of this terrible time of loss. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Now, Notice what happens, starting in verse 3. It says, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock. How many of you have ever seen pictures of Petra or gone to visit Petra? You see, Edom was to the south of the Dead Sea. Uh, it was south of Israel. And if you go there to, to uh, Israel, you can easily go and you can visit Petra. This is the cliffs that, that these massive city, uh, various buildings like libraries and others were, were carved into the rocks there in Petra. Here you can see another one, a massive cliff there. Uh, some famous, famous things that people have been visiting for decades. Now, we're not sure. Some of these things were added later than the time of the Edomites. Some were added just a couple centuries before the time of Christ, uh, but the, the area where Edom was uh, king over, where, where the kingdom of Edom was, was the capital was Salah, which is right here by Petra. So here you have in Obadiah chapter 3 saying, You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. And then it goes on to say, You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground. Now, this language, does, does it sound familiar to you from any other part of the Bible? Isaiah chapter 14, starting in verse 12, this, this oracle about Lucifer, that son of the morning who said something else in his heart. Let's keep going here. Verse 4 says, Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down. Let's look at some parallels here between Lucifer and Edom. Lucifer said in his heart, Edom had pride of your heart, God says. Uh, Lucifer said, I will ascend, Edom, God says, whose habitation is on high. Lucifer said, I'm going to exalt myself above the stars. Uh, Edom had a nest among the stars. Lucifer said, I will sit on the mount. Edom dwelt in the clefts, the cliffs of the mountains. Lucifer said, I will ascend above the very clouds. Edom was as high as the eagles, soaring up above the clouds. And both of them, it says, you will be brought down. God will bring you down. Though you're saying, I'll go up the way up, 
is actually down. So we continue. Look down at verse 10. Verse 10 of Obadiah, it says, For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Now this is fascinating here, because suddenly it's talking about an individual in the Old Testament by the name of? Okay, let's read it again. For violence against your brother. Okay, so now it's talking about a man in the Old Testament by the name of? who lived thousands of years before, or over a thousand years before the time that we're talking about here. And suddenly, God is saying, Edom, for violence against your brother, Jacob, shame will cover you, and you will be cut off forever. Fascinating how in the prophets you find this taking place. Um, Back in verse 6, we saw this. Oh, how Esau shall be searched out. Now, this is a little confusing to us because isn't this about Edom? And now why is it suddenly talking about Esau and Jacob? But we understand from Genesis chapter 36 and verse 8, it says, So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. So we're going to notice that later on. Mount Seir is equivalent to the area where the Edomites lived. And then it says this, Esau is what? Esau is Edom. And in the prophets, you find them again and again equating Edom with Esau and Israel with Jacob. It's talking about two individuals who had some things going on in their relationship. And as they're describing the chaos between Israel and Edom, in the process, they use this reminder of two individuals who had strife in their personal relationship. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame will cover you, and you will be cut off forever. Notice verse 11. It it describes a little bit what that violence looked like. What exactly is it talking about? What was this violence by Edom against Israel? Verse 11 says, In the day that you stood on the other side. So it says, Okay, Edom, you were standing down in your clefts of the rock. In the day that strangers carried captive his forces, talking about Jacob's forces. In the day that Nebuchadnezzar surrounded Jerusalem, you stood off to the side. When foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem's, even you were as one of them. You stood off to the side, and, and because of your lack of concern, because you didn't come to your brother's aid, it's as if you were a part of what was taking place there in Jerusalem, because you stood to the side and watched as they devastated your brothers there in Jerusalem. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity. You shouldn't have stood there and watched what was happening as Nebuchadnezzar's army devastated your brother's people. Now, at this point in time, they probably did not consider them as their brothers. They they were another nation that they were constantly warring against. But here Obadiah is saying, that was your brother. That, that, That nation that you were rejoicing over what was taking place, that's your brother. Now notice, the prophets, when they want to pinpoint what is going on in world events and with nations, not only are they pointing out the mark of the beast that's the mark of Satan's character that is within that nation, but they are also noting the interpersonal conflict that began it all. Remember that interpersonal conflict that took place between Jacob and Esau? When did it start? 
It started real early, <laughs> right? It, it started when, well, Rebecca wasn't able to have a child. Isaac prayed for, uh, for Rebecca to be able to have a child. I identify with that. And then I identify with the next part too, in that he had, she had twins in her womb, but she doesn't know that at first. All she knows is there's this inter, inner turmoil going on in her womb, and she says, what is going on inside of me? They were struggling in the womb. They struggled together even from the womb. They're fighting. Brothers could not get along even in the womb. But then we find a little bit later on, Jacob grabbed Esau's heel during birth. As he's coming out, he's grabbing a hold of his brother's heel. They're fighting as they are being born. It's a hard enough moment as it is, and they're fighting as they're being born. And that's why he was named Jacob, supplanter, heel grabber, the one who's the deceiver who's going to try to take his brother's place. And then you have, you know, if you think about it, they became just totally different in their lives. Um, Esau's the one who's the hunter. Jacob's the one who's tending the sheep who's there at home. They're polar opposites. There's nothing similar about them. They cannot get along. But not only that, you have a, the uh, father loving Esau and the mother loving Jacob. There's just family division, interpersonal conflicts throughout this story. Then you have one day Esau goes off and as he's hunting, he comes back, he's exhausted, he's desperate for food and Jacob, the sly, smart guy who stays home, has a nice pot of red lentil stew for him and so Jacob got Esau to sell his birthright to him for the stew and Esau despised his birthright. What big deal? I'll die anyway. I'll take your stew And so that's when we learn that he gets the name Edom, which means red. Esau meant red like his red hair, but Edom was from the red stew that he got from Jacob. Then we find that famous story where Jacob is convinced by his mother to obtain the blessing by deception. And then... Esau vows to kill Jacob. I'm going to kill him. As soon as my father dies, I will kill Jacob. Interpersonal conflicts at the heart of what became a battle between nations that became this massive conflict throughout history. It started with two individuals who couldn't get along. And sometimes we think, big deal. Yeah, I know I have this beef with this person in my life, but what's the big deal? It's a really big deal. It creates big things. It creates eternal consequences when we can't get along with each other. Two nations that were frequently at war. In fact, you know, you could look at various stories, but in Numbers, you find that after Israel has come out of the wilderness, uh, after they've been delivered from Egypt, they've come, they're wanting to go to the promised land, and they want to go through what country? Edom. And they get to the borders of Edom. And they're like, yes, this will be good. These are our brothers. These are our, our, our close relatives. We will send them a message and ask if we can travel through their country. And, and we'll tell them, we will only travel on the king's highway. And, and we won't eat any of your produce. We won't drink your water. We'll bring our own water. If we have to eat anything, we'll pay you for it. And the message comes back from the Edomites, from the Edomite king. No, you cannot pass through our land. Do not pass through our land. And the Israelites are like confused. Hey, this is our own family. They won't even let us just walk through the king's highway. So they send the message back again. Maybe you didn't understand. If we just go this way and we don't actually eat the produce and we won't touch anything, we won't harm anything. 
And Edom responds by marshalling the army and coming to the border and saying, no, you guys are not passing through our land. And you fast forward, you find various times where the Edomites were in, had the upper hand, and then you find times where David is fighting with the Edomites and Solomon, and eventually Israel had the upper hand over the Edomites for a long period of time. Back and forth, two nations warring, and it all stemmed from one interpersonal conflict. And so when the prophets describe the judgment that's coming on Edom, they use the language of Jacob and Esau, who just can't get along. Friends, God wants and cares about your marriage, your relationship with your kids, your relationship with your parents, your relationship with all the people in your life. Those things matter in, a, in an eternal way, is very clear from the Bible. Verse 12, Nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. It sounds like they're, they're there in their cliff dwellings and they're scoffing at, they're mocking the Israelites who are being destroyed by the Babylonian army. God says, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't laugh at the, the, the hardships that are going on in other people's lives. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Now it takes it a step further. Apparently they didn't just stand afar off and, and point, but they actually realized, hey, this is an opportunity. And they entered into Jerusalem in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. They went in and they took advantage of the fact that Israel had been destroyed, that Jerusalem had been destroyed, and they went in and they plundered some stuff for themselves and took it for themselves. But it didn't stop there. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped. So as they're escaping Jerusalem, you, you have these Israelites who are, are fleeing for their lives. What do you call a person that's fleeing for their life? A refugee. You have these refugees who are running from Jerusalem. They're fleeing for their lives. And the Edomites are there standing at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped. They're weak. They're tired. They're hungry. They're desperate to live. And the Edomites are cutting them down. Nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. Friends, as we look at refugees who are in desperate need right now in our world, the Bible is clear time and time again that our hearts should be open to do whatever we can to help refugees. You know, fascinating thing I read about this week, I read about it yesterday, that a, a guy uh, who's an Instagram influencer decided that, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start a GoFundMe page to help get those out of Afghanistan who are in significant danger from the Taliban. And he sets up this GoFundMe with a goal of $2.2 million. Within 24 hours, I think it was, he had about $4 million. And as of yesterday, he had $6.2 million. Now there's questions as to how he's going to do that. How is he going to get people out? Where is he going to take them once he gets them out? There's a lot of questions there, but here's the thing. He's doing something to try to help people in desperate need. And we can be among those who just stand off to the side and gaze and say, too bad for them. Or we can ask, God, how would you have me to help? But most importantly, it's in our interpersonal daily relationships that we avoid the conflicts that are stirring in our world today. 
We could look at the story of Isaac and Ishmael and how those became two separate nations and, and much of the chaos that we see in the Middle East stemmed from the conflict in Abraham's family that could not get along. God calls us to love those around us, to recognize our interconnectedness with the people around us. You know, uh, there's different comments about what's going on with people fleeing from Afghanistan, but I love the perspective that was given by a guy that somebody sent this on to me from Twitter. David uh, Solomini wrote this. There's a good chance someone in this photo will create a wildly successful company, invent something amazing, or get elected to public office. Many will serve their new country in the military, and their children will love this country more than most of us can understand. That's a perspective of saying, here's some people who are in desperate need. What can we possibly do to help? But oftentimes, it's not in the big scale of large, faraway countries that we're able to help. You know, Haiti needs our help right now. And you can help by donating to ADRA. They have funds that are going directly to to Haiti. But in that day-to-day relationship, that person next to you that needs encouragement, your husband, your wife, your coworker, your boss, your neighbor, you can make an eternal difference in the way that you treat them. That's the message that we get from this tiny little book of Obadiah. And notice how he ties this story and, and he makes it not just about Edom and Israel. You might be wondering, why in the world did Pastor Zach decide to go from talking about the third angel's message to talking about this little country called Edom and their beef with Israel? There's a lot involved in this that helps us to understand the third angel's message. Notice what verse 15 goes on to say. It says, For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. So he immediately shifts gears and he says, Okay, now this is about the day of the Lord. What's that another word for in the Old Testament? The second coming, the judgment, the the day when God puts everything right. The day of the Lord upon all the nations. So this is about the whole world. This little vignette of what takes place between an interpersonal conflict that spawns into two nations fighting against each other. And in the end, they're mistreating their brothers when they're in the midst of pain and suffering. This is a little symbol of what takes place on the day of the Lord upon all nations. As you have done, now notice what it says here. This is an important point. As you have done, it shall be done to you. What's the day of the Lord all about? What is the judgment all about? Obadiah says, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. This is an incredible thing. It's like God is stepping back and he's taking himself out of the picture. And he says, here's what's going to happen. In the day of the Lord, when judgment happens... Everybody will have made their own decision. (laughs) And what happens in the day of judgment is not based upon me interposing some arbitrary punishment upon them, but instead they will reap the choices and the consequences of everything that they have done in their lives. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. You know, it's like God is saying to us, every day you're throwing boomerangs. And as you throw those boomerangs out, those boomerangs are going to come back. The wages of sin is death. When sin is fully uh, matured, James says, it brings forth death. But God in his mercy is catching boomerangs right now. I've thrown a lot of boomerangs. (laughs) And in his mercy and grace, 
Romans chapter 3 tells us in his forbearance and mercy, he's passed by our transgressions. He's at the cross. He caught all of our boomerangs and took them into himself. And there's no reason that one single boomerang needs to come back on any of our heads. Amazing God, isn't he? But there is coming a day, the Bible wants it to be very clear, there's coming a day of judgment when God will finally have to say, okay, you want this? Here's your boomerangs. You can have them back. They're coming back on your own head. And then verse 16 goes on to say, and they shall be as though they had never been. Edom will come to a place where it ceases to exist as a result of its determination to isolate itself, to pursue persecution against its brother, as a result of those interpersonal relationships that were unresolved. Edom will be as though they had never been. Now we find this picked up in other places. The prophets often are talking about Edom and Jacob and Esau. But in Ezekiel chapter 35 and verse 5, talking about Edom, it says this, because you cherish perpetual enmity. Other versions will say uh, the, basically the grudge that you had from a long time ago. This is talking about that, that beef that, that Jacob and Esau had with each other, that interpersonal conflict. Because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity. At the time of their final punishment, notice what it goes on to say. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood. And blood shall pursue you because you did not hate bloodshed. Therefore, blood shall pursue you. Just like Revelation chapter 13 says, those who kill with the sword will be killed with the sword. You persecuted your brothers. That's going to come back upon you in the end. It goes on to say in verse 11. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, I will do according to your what? Anger and according to the envy which you showed in your hatred against them. The, the measure of what takes place in the judgment is not based upon some arbitrary decision by God. It is based upon our own anger, our own envy, our own actions coming back upon us. And if you don't want to face those, begin to face them now. Come to the cross now. Confess your sins now and allow Jesus to heal you and cleanse you from the inside out today. The decisions that I make now in my relationships mean absolutely everything. Leah often has to remind me, you know, remember it's about the relationship. Not that I ever want to be untruthful in any relationship, but there are truths that don't need to be shared. There are things that can be said that are hurtful that I might feel right about, but in the end, it only hurts the relationship. And God's not calling me to that. It's got to be a Holy Spirit-inspired thing, but he's calling me to share truth in a way that builds, if possible, the relationship. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, I will do according to your anger and according to the envy which you showed in your hatred against them. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have heard all your blasphemies which you have spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying, they are desolate. They are given to us to consume. They had pointed to Israel and said, look it, they're desolated by the Babylonians. Now let's go and consume them. Let's devour them. And God says, in the end, you're going to be devoured just like you wanted to take place there. Thus, with your mouth, you have boasted against me and multiplied your words against me. I have heard 
them. Thus says the Lord God, the whole earth will rejoice when I make you desolate. You rejoiced over their suffering. Now the whole earth is going to rejoice in that moment when a final destruction comes to you. Notice how it goes on. Uh, Actually, let's go back to Obadiah chapter 15. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisals shall return upon your own head. It's going to come back on you. You know, how we treat the person next to us, the person that we deal with at the store, the person that, that is difficult in our lives. It matters. Jesus said, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Love your neighbor as yourself. We are interconnected. God compares Jacob and Esau and Edom and Israel as brothers, even though they're distantly connected at this point. In God's eyes, your brothers and sisters with the Taliban, with the people in Afghanistan, with the people in Haiti, with me, we're all one human family. And what I do to you is like doing it to my brother. And in the end, it's going to be like doing it to myself. As that um, Romans chapter 2 tells us that, that there's this reservoir of shame and wrath that will build up inside of us if we harden our hearts in this time of God's goodness and forbearance, which is meant to lead us to repentance. And that will come back on us in the righteous revelation of his judgment in the final day. And then we will experience what Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane if we don't choose to experience his healing grace now. Friends, God wants us to work on our relationships. You know, I was reminded of something that stuck in my wife's mind for a really long time. You know, she, she said, there was one day where my sister and I were fighting, and as we were fighting, suddenly my mom said, look, girls, there's enough people in the world who are going to be mean to your sister. There's enough people in the world who are going to fight with your sister. You guys just be nice to each other. Be there for each other as sisters. And that has stuck with her. I've heard her repeat that many different times. But if only I realized that every human being that I come in contact with, they have enough people in the world who are going to mistreat them. They have enough hardship that they're going to go through. They don't need to get more from me. They need to experience God's grace and mercy and justice flowing out of my heart as can only take place as he changes it through the Holy Spirit. And we saw verse 16 says, they shall be as though they had never been. And this is where we come full circle to the third angel's message. As we look, let's look at Isaiah chapter 34, where we find the the only place that uses a phrase that we've been looking at in Revelation chapter 14. See if you can pick up that phrase as we go through Isaiah chapter 34. It says, And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of, of did I skip, let's see here, uh, there we go, uh, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion, oh I just did those two verses backwards, sorry about that, night and day it shall not be, what does it say, quenched, this fire is going to be unquenchable in Edom, is the, the prophet Isaiah is saying, and then notice what it says next, its smoke shall go up forever. The smoke shall ascend from the judgment of Edom, and it will go up forever. Well, Isaiah, what do you mean by that? Is this talking about an eternal torment that is going to lead us to rejoice for billions and billions of years as the Edomites writhe and scream in torment and pain, and we're going to be rejoicing, saying God's judgments are just and true? 
God's only going to give back what people have done. It's impossible for somebody to endure an eternity of torment uh, in, an, in an unending billions and billions, millions and millions of years way by a just God who has said, according to your works, it will be done to you. Notice what the very, the verse continues to say. It smokes shall go up forever and ever. What does that mean? Oh, sorry. Remember, this is from Revelation chapter 14. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. That's what we've been looking at with the, the third angel's message. Verse 10 continues. The smoke of their torments goes up forever and ever. From generation to generation, it shall not lie waste. It shall lie waste, sorry. <laughs> it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. The smoke will go up and it's going to lie waste. It's going to be a place that's desolate where there is no life. As Obadiah 16 said, they shall be as if they never were. It goes on to say, but the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. They're going to be right there with it. There's not a, a, a fire that continues to burn there. Verse 13, thorns shall grow up over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. And they shall be as though they had never been. And thus we can say just and true are your ways, O God. You give back what people have asked for, what they have chosen on their own. And that's why we find in Revelation chapter 19 that this idea continues. Notice what people are worshiping about in the end. Revelation chapter 19, it says, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. And what are they worshiping him about? Notice verse 2. For true and righteous are his... Judgments, we need to get excited about the judgment. Perfect love casts out all fear, for fear involves torment. But perfect love has boldness in the day of judgment, First John tells us. For true and righteous are his judgments. Because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. This, this prostitute was a persecuting power. Babylon was a persecuting power. And God has avenged the blood of those who were persecuted back upon her head. This is the cry in Revelation. How long, O oh Lord? How long is this persecution going to go on? When is it going to come to an end? And here they are worshiping. Here we will be worshiping, saying, God, you did it. You brought that to an end. And you know, the chapter before this, God says, come out of her, my people. There's going to be a lot of people here in Revelation chapter 19 who were a part of that persecuting power, who had been flinging boomerangs, not realizing what they were doing. And God said, come out of her, my people. Come and be a part of my kingdom. Be sealed with the Lamb's character, that self-sacrificing love. And they will be singing and rejoicing that God gave them what they chose. And then notice, as they sing, notice what they're singing about. Again, they said, Alleluia! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. Friends, they are not singing because there are screams coming from some corner of the universe. They are rejoicing because God has perfectly judged his universe in a way that has brought a completion to sin and established love and righteousness for all of eternity. 
The smoke ascends forever and ever. And we can rejoice in this reality of God's completed and final judgment. They shall be as though they had not been. Revelation chapter 22 gives us this picture of Jesus coming back with his reward with him. Verse 12 says, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his... Okay, let's try this again. Maybe you guys need to, to stand up with me for a second. Stand up with me and read what's taking place here. I think someone, we're losing some of you, all right? And behold, let's read it together. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his... Jesus says, when I come back, my reward is already determined. You can sit down. Because when I come back, my reward has already been determined by who? By you, by me. It's our determination what is involved in the reward. The verse before this, notice what God says. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be righteous, be holy still. Whatever you want, you can have throughout eternity. It's good news that there's room in the kingdom if you want to be a part of Jesus' character of unselfish love. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce put it this way, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. There are those who say, I want righteousness. And God says, your will be done. And there are those who say, I want unrighteousness. And God says, your will be done. They will reap what they have sown. All that are in hell choose it without... Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek it, find it. Those who knock, to those who knock, it is opened. The Desire of Ages summarizes it this way, commenting on this verse, and they shall be as though they had never been. This is not an arbitrary act of power on the part of of God. It's not arbitrary where he just says, I'm going to put an end to this by arbitrary power. The rejectors of his mercy reap that which they have sown. God is the fountain of life, and when one chooses the service of sin, he separates from God and thus cuts himself off from life. He is alienated from the life of God, Ephesians 4.18. Christ says, all they that love me, love death. All they that hate me, love death. Proverbs 8, verse 36. God gives them existence for a time that they may develop their character and reveal their principles. This accomplished, they receive the results of their own choice. Finally, God says, let the boomerangs go back. Let them have what they are longing for. By a life of rebellion, Satan and all who unite with him place themselves so out of harmony with God that his very presence is to them a consuming fire. The glory of him who is love will destroy them. We've been looking at that, how God's very love is described as a consuming, unquenchable fire. And in that presence, all shame and guilt cannot stand. And we will want to be hid from the face of him who died for us. Friends, we can rejoice that that smoke ascends forever and ever. We can rejoice 
even as we see the horrific conflicts that are going on in this world, as we see what's taking place with the Taliban, one person approached me after, uh, Steve approached me after first service. You know, by the way, there's at least one of us that comes to two services. This is a pretty cool thing. Actually, two of us. I'm there and Steve's there. But he gets a double blessing. If anybody else wants it, you're welcome to join in. But he was saying, you know, looking at the Taliban, you look at, at what they're doing and you just, you just want them to get it. You want vengeance on them. You want to do something to destroy them. The picture throughout the Bible is vengeance is mine. Let me handle it. They're going to get all that hatred back. All that killing is going to come back on their own heads. And I'm going to bring justice to those who are being oppressed by them. I will work this out. And God invites us to be a part of those who are loving our enemies, who are giving a cold drink to those who are thirsty, giving food to those who are in need, who are doing whatever it takes to make sure everybody in our circle of influence, near or far away, that we do everything possible to show them the love of Jesus that wants to be with them throughout eternity. Would you bow your heads with me and just thank God for the smoke that ascends forever and ever? Lord God, we thank you. Thank you that you, in the judgment, we will say you are righteous and true because you judge based upon what we want. You give us freedom of choice and that's the only way we could ever really love you. Thank you. You desperately want for a people who will forever be settled in your love, who will never allow rebellion to come up again. Lord, may that take place in my heart and in each heart here, day by day. Lord, I pray for the interpersonal relationships. Father, I pray for the marriages in this room that you would bless each marriage. Father, I pray for the relationships with children and with parents for the relationships between siblings, for the relationships with our boss, our coworkers, our neighbors, the people that we run into in the streets, the people that we don't want to run into in town. Father, would you lead us to love in practical ways, even when we don't feel like it, so that we can put an end to this conflict forever. Bless my friends as they go from this place to fix their eyes on Jesus the boomerang catcher who's holding back the winds of strife so that we can have another breath, another day to live. Thank you for your mercy and grace. May that goodness lead us to repentance. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.